From WNYC Studios, welcome back to Snap Judgment, the backstory episode. My name is Glenn Washington, and for our next journey, we're going back in time to South Africa, the 1980s, when Nelson Mandela was in jail and apartheid was law. I was looking for a cause in my life. Well, I was 21, so I was still young enough to go back to university. Right from the first week of term, the organisations are all out recruiting people. I found it really easy to make friends in in left-wing organisations, but I'm here under false pretenses. See, months before, Olivia had joined South Africa's apartheid government as a spy. For her, going back to college was an assignment. When I was first approached by national intelligence, I asked them what they did. And they said, well, we collect information, we send people overseas. I thought, wow, I'd love to go overseas. You become part of the secret world, which is quite intoxicating. But it was only when they said, you're going to go back to university, that I thought, oh, that was a bit of a reality check. That's not what I was expecting. Olivia's mission? infiltrate the leftist student groups at Rhodes University in Grahamstown. Posing as an activist, she grew close with organizers who were against the apartheid government, like Priscilla. Priscilla Hall, I actually heard about from files that the police gave me to read before I even went undercover. She was regarded by the police anyway as a kind of irritating liberal. So I met her after I'd got to Grahamstown at one of the meetings that we had. She also met activists who lived in the segregated, all-black township neighboring Grahamstown, like Chris. He was a, a very sincere young man. Chris was the leader of an organization in the black township called Graco, the Grahamstown Youth Congress. I met him with, with one of our mutual lefty friends the first time. Together, they would stage protests, print leaflets, and recruit new members. Then, with that information, Olivia would break off from the group. She'd grab her running shoes and go for a jog down a quiet university road. From there, her security branch handler would tail her in his car. And when the coast was clear, he'd slow down and open the side door. Jump in the car, duck down in a footwell, he'd throw a blanket over me and then drive somewhere where we could talk. Olivia handed over names, addresses, and associates of anyone she thought the government would consider a traitor. My hand said, there will come a time when you will identify with the enemy. It's a perfectly normal part of infiltration. And they sort of warned me of all of this. One night, Olivia was at home when she got a call from Priscilla. It was about eight o'clock one night. I was at home and she phoned me. She phoned me and she said, Chris's house has been petrol bombed. We need your help. Um, can you come down there? And and so uh, and and I didn't hesitate straight away. I just thought, oh my God, you know, jumped in the car and drove there. Chris's girlfriend had been injured in this petrol bomb blast, and she was sitting there with the blanket over her. And so I didn't realise how badly she was injured. And they said, can you take her to the hospital? And so they put her in the back of my car, and I drove to the hospital really quickly. Got to the hospital. 
jumped out of the car, ran into reception, and there was a bloke sitting behind the counter at reception, and I said to him, quickly, quickly, you've got to get a stretcher, get the doctors, I've got a girl in the car who's really been badly injured. And he, he, he looked up at me, and he said in a, in, in a very strong Afrikaans accent, he said, lady, is she black or white? And you know, at that moment, I was so angry. She's black, what difference does it make? And he said, well, lady, if she's black, you have to go around to the back entrance of the hospital. So I jumped in the car and I drove around to the back. The doctors, when I did get to the back entrance, were fantastic. But when they took the blankets off and they put her on the stretcher, I realized that her skin was just hanging off her in shreds. They transferred her to another hospital the next day. But the third day, she died. Her, her burns were too significant. She couldn't survive. And, you know, she was 16 years old and she had done nothing. It really got to me. She was innocent. She was just somebody's girlfriend. She was a young girl with her life ahead of her. And she died because her boyfriend was trying to change an evil system. That really affected me deeply and made me really feel a huge amount of anger towards the apartheid system, the whole state, all of its apparatus. From then, I knew that I'd have to do something to make it right. I thought, I'm not just an informer, I'm an intelligence operative, and if there's going to be a way I can make amends, it's going to be in a much more serious and high-level way. Olivia wanted to work for the ANC, the African National Congress, the major apartheid resistance group in South Africa, the same group she'd been monitoring and reporting on for the security branch. But she needed an in. So... When the security branch told her to become a journalist and keep tabs on leftist leadership, she made a contact at the ANC, who asked to meet her in person. A man called Comrade Robert um, in a park in Harare. I sat next to Comrade Robert on the park bench and said to him, I'm a lieutenant in the South African security branch and I want to come and work for the ANC. Comrade Robert was quite excited and eventually we decamped to an ANC safe house and he debriefed me there. And I was able to give the ANC quite a lot of information about other agents. The ANC sent Olivia right back into the field. Now she would report on the inner workings of the South African police force. She would keep posing as a journalist and continue her regular meetings with her security branch handlers. And I remember going to the safe flat, sitting down amongst these members of the South African security police. Everything was the same, but I was different. And so it was now, the main difference for me was that I now was observing details about them. I was very much aware of the risks. I mean, A, the risk of them finding out that I defected. They wouldn't hesitate to harm people whom they considered betrayers. When some of the ANC leadership people in the Eastern Cape disappeared and were found murdered, I knew it was them. So yes, there was a risk of me being harmed by the security branch. But once I had defected, I felt as if I was walking on air. And after six months of playing both sides, the ANC told Olivia they were sending her off for military training. The morning of her departure, she woke up excited. A convoy picked her up from her house and brought her to a camp in the brush. There, she met the camp commander. He said, uh, do you know why you're here? And I smiled and I said, yes, I think so. Because as far as I was concerned, I was there for military training. And then he gestured behind me and he said, 
can you just put that uniform on? And I turned around and on the table behind me was all my luggage and they'd smashed open the locks. And I thought, well, why have they done that? And then he said to me, do you have any tackies, trainers in South African? And I said, yes, I did. He said, we'll take them out. I took them out. And he said, take out the laces. And then I just knew. And my heart just sank. I just went cold because as soon as he said, take out the laces, I knew I was a prisoner. I was shocked because I couldn't understand why, but I didn't really have time to think then. I took the laces out and, and he said, just go with this comrade over here. I started to get alarmed and angry. I said, what's going on? And he said, he just looked at me and he smiled and he said, you will see. Olivia was an inmate at Quattro, the ANC's secret prison for defectors, traitors, and enemies. It was unbearably hot. We used to lie on the floor with our mouths near the door to try and get some fresh air sometimes. We could only hear things. We were kept in the cell more or less 24 hours a day. Some of the people in the ANC hadn't trusted me. Why would they want to lock me up? I came to them. I've confessed everything. I don't need to be locked up. Lying awake at night in the camp, in the cell, I did often wonder uh, how much the, the police knew and if they didn't know why they hadn't sent a rescue party. I felt absolutely powerless. More than anything, I felt absolutely powerless. Olivia was locked up in Quattro for six months when the ANC moved her to a secret location, a safe house in a nearby town. They came up with this idea of using me in a prisoner exchange to try and get some high-level ANC prisoners released from apartheid jails. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. I was quite happy to do that. But the trouble was, once the letter went about the prison exchange, there was no response from the South African government at all. The South African police were not looking for Olivia. They had abandoned her. And the ANC wanted to keep her a prisoner, not deploy her as an agent. The weeks started to become months, and I was sitting there day after day. And then the fact that my family hadn't seen me for two years started really playing heavily on my mind. I missed them terribly. I, you know, I used to lie in bed and wonder where they were, what they were doing, were they still alive? And I knew they'd be wondering the same thing about me. Olivia knew the ANC would never release her from house arrest. She had to escape. Leaving was actually a very difficult decision because I did feel I owed a huge allegiance to the people in the ANC who had taken the trouble to trust me and work with me. But I've, I felt so strongly that I was never, ever going to be used. Behind the ANC safe house lived um, a retired man, grandfather, and he was called Tio Mario. And he always used to just greet me in a friendly way whenever he saw me, and occasionally he would ask how I was. And... He had a car, and I thought, well, he's the only person who's going to be able to help me. Eventually, one day, he was in the yard, no one else was around, and I just said to him, look, I need to get to the British Embassy because I need to contact my family and let them know I'm all right. That's all I said. I didn't say I was going to escape or anything. And he nodded, and he said, yes, sure, he'd be able to take me there. And we made an arrangement for the Saturday. 
all the comrades were at the other side of the house. I was on my own. He arrived and he beckoned to me and I just jumped over the wall, jumped into the footwell of the Land Rover. And he drove off and I was absolutely petrified at that moment. I was just waiting to hear people shouting. I was waiting to hear gunshots. I was waiting to hear AK-47s being fired and they didn't come. And he kept driving and eventually I sat up and I could see he was driving through the streets of Luanda and eventually stopped in front of this gate and I could see in Portuguese that it said Embassy of Great Britain. And I thought, wow, he has brought me to the right place. The whole building, the whole place, the whole embassy compound was in absolute silence. But I could hear my heart thumping louder than anything and I needed to get out of the open and eventually when no one answered the door, I just tried it and it opened and I went inside. And then suddenly I was in this cool, quiet space and I was safe. And it was all quite surreal. It was elegant and smelled nice and I felt as if I was in limbo, to be honest. There was a sense of unreality about it. I couldn't quite believe I was there. The British Embassy takes Olivia in and negotiates her return to South Africa. She's reunited with her family and allowed to return to their home. But she's not off the hook. Once she's back at home, the security branch contacts her. They tell her, you betrayed us, and now you have to cooperate with us, or we will make you disappear. So Olivia agrees to work with them on a propaganda piece that pits her as an apartheid hero, a triple agent sent to spy on the ANC. They call it Project Yurchenko. Produced quite professionally with a script and lots of cuttings to various maps and things to make it sound authentic and interviews with the head of the security branch about what a great spy I was. And they said that they had sent me to defect. Project Yurchenko was front-page news in South Africa, and many people reviled Olivia after the story was released. She was a cog in the apartheid government's corrupt system. She couldn't tell the truth, her truth, that she had worked against them all along. Instead, she kept her head down, changed her name, became a private member of society, and tried to move on. When you think about things you've done in your past, there are often things you'd rather you'd done differently. But I would do it all over again because I think whatever happens, it's important in the end to do what's right. I think every human being knows what's right. And I knew, although I had landed in my search for an exciting life, I'd landed on the wrong side of the apartheid struggle. I think I did what was right. I, I defected. Whether it, I did it in the right way or at the right time, I mean, you know, you could speculate endlessly. I'm just glad that I did it. Thank you, Olivia Forsyth, for sharing your backstory with a snap. If you want to hear more from Olivia, She's written a book, Agent 407. Find out more information on our website, snapjudgment.org. The original score was by Renzo Gorio, and that story was produced by Eliza Smith. <laughs> <laughs>